Welcome to the Catholic Cafe, where all that the Catholic Church believes and teaches is served fresh daily. So come on in and see what's on the menu today. Now, here's your host, Deacon Jeff Drzymski. Greetings and welcome to the Catholic Cafe. I'm Deacon Jeff sitting in the luxurious corner booth of the Catholic Cafe, made ever more luxurious by the fact that we're in Lourdes, France, which is a wonderful place to be. It's a great break from Memphis. That's exactly right. So we love being here in the Catholic Cafe's luxurious corner booth, and we also love our guest today. That's right. We have a great guest. It's Jim Gonsalves. Gonsalves. That's Spanish? Americanized Portuguese. Americanized Portuguese. Now, Jim, you're from Park City, Utah. Correct. And you've got quite a story to tell. You are one of the pilgrims here in Lourdes, and you're what is lovingly referred to as a malad. Correct. What is a malad? Maladies, people with infections, people with diseases, people with chronic illness, injuries, substance abuse problems, depression. Could be a lot of things. As a malad, you come to this place uh, known for healing. Everyone comes together to this beautiful place for the intercession of Our Lady. Uh, And it's a wonderful place to be. But with every malad, with every person, with every companion, with, with every pilgrim that comes to this place, there's a story behind every one of them. One of the things that was marvelous was we had this opportunity to have this candlelight procession, right? And we, and we see these thousands upon thousands of candles being lifted up at the Aves. It's just so beautiful to see. And then to think that each one of those candles really represents one person's story. And we want to talk a little bit about your story, Jim. Tell us what happened to you and and why you're here in Lourdes with us. Well, everything started with me five and a half years ago after a ski accident. Um, Had a a crash on the skis, got up, dusted myself off, put my skis back on, and and went on thinking it was, you know, just one of those embarrassing moments. No major damage. No major damage. You know, I was hurting a little bit, but, but not much. Uh, two months later, I went out on a run. I mean, I, I continued. I was very active. Uh, I was a 30-mile-a-week runner. I did bodybuilding. Like Deacon um, Jeff. He oh, yeah, yes. Unlike Deacon Jeff. I'm, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm active in eating donuts and, and uh, things at the Catholic Cafe. But, okay. yeah. but So you were very physically fit. Very physically fit. And, and uh, golfer, um, skier, mountain biker, you know, all of that. Um, so I went out on a run one day. Probably six, eight weeks after the accident. And, you know, I was used to going out and running six, eight, ten miles if, at, at a time if I wanted to. And I was getting ready for a half marathon and went out for a long road run. And my left foot just started to drop. And within a block or so, it just felt like my legs were running in concrete. I just couldn't move. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't understand it. And, you know, it, I, it's a guy thing. Just run through it. Um, long story short, the end of it is, um, a year and a half later, finally got into a a doctor that looked at at some MRIs and some x-rays and said, what are you doing next week? I had a a serious, uh, back injury. And he said, if we don't operate on this, you're going to lose the use of your legs. Now, did that injury, was that a result of the skiing? That's the only thing that I can think of. There, there was no other injury. The running was not. Uh, the running was not responsible for it. I'd, I'd been running for 25 years. So did no. they do surgery? Did so I went yeah. in, had surgery, and when he opened me up to do the fusion, the, the brake was at L5. The back of the pedicle fell off. It didn't show up on x-rays, didn't show up on an MRI. And I, I'm sorry, I don't have a medical. L5 is, is the, the, the lowest. Lower it's the lower back right okay. about the belt line. 
Okay. And so he fixed that, thought everything was okay. The legs continued to get weaker. Well, now tell us, though, Jim, I mean, we have to go back to that first time that that doctor said, you know, you need to come and have surgery. Right. Just to hear those words and and to hear the words when doctors are always so... uh, you know, helpful with their, with their diagnosis. Sometimes they'll let you know that if you don't do this, you're going to lose the use of your legs. I just want to talk about that for a second. Well, I mean, at that point, what goes through your mind, a man who's so physically fit, so active, so constantly doing things and so self-reliant, what, what happens when someone says, this is, this is really serious. Yeah. But I've always been the kind of person that just says, buck up. Yeah. It it is this way. You don't like it, but you just buck up get it done, get it fixed, get on with life. And so it didn't scare me. The thought of not fixing it was much scarier. But then um, once you had the surgery and you're thinking everything's great, everything but then was great. it's not great. It wasn't great. Mm. You know, within a month or two, I was using a cane. And the legs kept getting worse. And I kept thinking back to that, you know, buck up. Uh, you know, just, just work through it. And they were telling me, oh, you're just going too hard on your physical therapy. Back off. You're, 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 you're trying to get back into it too quickly. Uh, six months later, they're even worse. Now I'm in hand crutches, in the, or forearm crutches, as they call them. Um, so he didn't know what to do. He saw that he, he went, I went back in for some more MRIs, and they saw a herniation at T6, the level T6, T7 is between the shoulder blades. So some more neck problems? or Well, it's up between back. the shoulder blades, okay. you know, that controls from your chest down. Saw the herniation, but he, he looked at it and thought, oh, it's nothing. That's not what your problem is. He sent me off to a, neuro- a neurologist at the uh, University of Utah Hospital. He came in, did one 45-minute EMG exam, said, you have ALS. Now, we got to stop yeah. there because that's that, you know, you say those words and now you say them casually, right? Yeah. But when you're hearing those words from a doctor, that had to be devastating. It's a cold, it's a cold oh. bucket of water in the face. And to make matters worse, he left the door open to the exam room, walked out into the hallway, and started uh, joking around with the nurse about their football pool that week. And he yeah. had just given me a, 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 a diagnosis of an absolute cruel disease. I mean, it's not something that you just die from. It's, it's a horrifying disease of being trapped in a body that you know everything that's going on. Your mind is there. It's your body that dies. Oh, I know, and it sounds it's it's horrible. Gruesome. In fact, our guest co-host here, Robert Hutton, good friend of mine. And, Robert, I know that you shared some of that same feeling. You know, I had the same thing. And, actually, it's hard for me to talk about this without getting emotional because I was actually at an Order of Malta event, and I was having problems where my muscles were getting weak and they were wasting away. And I had to go get the test, and I got the call from the doctors that I needed to come in um, because um, they thought that I had ALS. And I remember calling Deacon Jeff, who's also a good friend other than being a co-host, because you know I have four children. And just the thought of that disease and the thought of dying and just becoming so helpless. And as a lawyer, Deacon Jeff, I'm so used to being in charge, to taking control of things, to planning everything out and to running things. And to realize that I was probably going to be put in a position of total helplessness to where I couldn't work or I didn't think I could work. I couldn't love my family. Then I wouldn't be here in a couple of years. And how is my wife going to support the kids? It's a real, like you said, I mean, a bucket of water doesn't even describe it. It is just a... um, um, a, um, it's a frightful experience. Oh, it's scary. Oh, it's absolutely scary. 
and the things in my faith with me, it was like, God, I just, why, you know, right. why, you know, not me, but how can you do this to my children? Um, was the first sort of thought. And I'm a person that's been a Catholic my whole life. Um, but you know, it, it, at the end, two things, I didn't have ALS. I ultimately had a problem in my neck where I had surgery, uh, that stopped the progression of the, um, the muscle atrophy. Um, but you know, uh, the Lord made me realize just, you know, life is very short and very precious. And, um, and you know, we all, and it's not always yours and it's not always what we want to be. Is it? No, no, it's not. Um, after that, you know, of course I'm, I'm living in, in doubt because it all started with the ski accident. My wife went on the internet and they try to tell you, don't doctor Google. Yeah. yeah. But you, you have can't. to be your own yeah. advocate. Yeah. You have to push. You can't uh, stop. I you mean, cannot stop. And there's an old joke in the, the medical field that be careful what specialist you go to because you have a 90% chance of having their specialty when you walk <laughs> out the door. Yeah. To a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Correct. And so yeah. we, we didn't give up. Her more than me. So she who is the her? Tell us. My wife, the, my wife, Tracy. All right. Yes. It's good to have an in advocate. that situation yes. an advocate for you. Absolutely. Yes, so. This is a part of the beauty, the grace of, uh, of holy matrimony, isn't it? Oh, it's for better or worse. Yeah, absolutely. You it's know, wonderful. I have a wife that packs me on her back up and down three <laughs> flights of stairs every day. That's um, beautiful. Isn't that great? Yes, it is. You know, I remember asking my wife because I was so afraid. And, you know, uh, and she said, you know, I love you no matter what. You know, yeah. I mean, just the feeling, just that's when I really experienced, I think the love of my wife, knowing that I could be a total invalid yes, and that she was still there for me and realize how lucky you are yeah. because 80% of marriages where one of the spouses is diagnosed with a terminal illness mm-hmm. or a serious uh, disability end up in divorce. Robert, you, you mentioned that mm-hmm. really you, you talk about this is maybe one of the first times you really, really get a sense of what true love is all about. Right. And you mentioned the for better or for worse. Yeah. And sometimes we, we're talking about now something that the very painful subject here, literally and figuratively, the, and we're talking about the mystery of suffering. Why we suffer? Why you ask God, Robert, why, why me? Why, why would you, why would you do this to my kids? And, and we wonder, but at the same time, you first felt the the true love and devotion of your wife at that point, right? To receive that grace of, of matrimony in that, in that essence. And so we see sometimes that we have to have some of that worse so that we can have the better, so we can appreciate and love the You have the no better. perspective if you don't. You, you have to feel the pain mm-hmm. in order to really appreciate the pleasure. You know, Jim, for me, it was going to Mass and really feeling broken and looking up at the crucifix in our parish church and seeing Christ hanging on the cross and realizing, you know, that whole scripture about if you want resurrection, you have to take up your cross and follow me. Sure. And that there's something about the Christian mystery of having to die to self and to die to things I, you know, that, I, that I feel that, you know, that I was most, I, I guess, dependent upon. Um, oh, I, I mean, it, absolutely. My prior self, my, my previous life, as I, I call it, I was into bodybuilding. I was a 30, 35-mile-a-week runner. I was an eight-handicap golfer. I had my own airplanes. I was a private pilot. But as I came to realize, and somebody said something to me at breakfast this morning, that those were what you were, but those aren't who you were. Right. And now and, and it took, yeah. and, and, and I honestly, um, I had the vanity because of all those things. Yeah, I, I admit I, I was vain. 
you know, it, it's just a natural thing, I think, that, you know, that male ego, you, you can become vain um, with those things. And having those taken away, you realize who you are. And there's an old saying that I picked up from someone uh, one day that says, adversity doesn't build character, it reveals it. Amen. That's, that's beautiful. It's a wonderful thought. And we're going to talk more about that when we come back and talk about Let's get further into the story and find out, you know, what's what's become of you at this point. Where are you now, and how did you get where you are today, and how long has has, has all this taken place? We're going to do that when we come back. Take a short break. Before we do that, we want to remind everyone at home that we have a wonderful website, www.thecatholiccafe.com. Also, we have an opportunity that you would uh, email me. I'd love to hear from you, uh, Deacon Jeff at thecatholiccafe.com. And so, with that, we'll be right back. I'm Bess Drzemski, and this is another great moment in church history. Many non-Catholics who visit a Catholic church to attend a funeral or wedding are curious about some of the gestures made by the faithful during worship, including crossing themselves and genuflecting. One of the distinctive marks of the Catholic and Orthodox Christians is the practice of making the sign of the cross. This gesture, which often begins and ends prayers, is made by tracing a cross on the body by touching the forehead, lower chest, and both shoulders, while saying, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thus, each Catholic prayer begins and ends by invoking the Most Blessed Trinity, and reminds the faithful that they are indelibly marked with the cross of the crucified Christ. This sign also makes each spoken prayer liturgical, in that the whole body is used in the act of worship. Making the sign of the cross is one of the most ancient Christian gestures, which is well known and referenced by early church fathers. Writing in the second century, Tertullian explains that in all our travels and movements, in bathing, working, and eating, Christians must mark their foreheads with the sign of the cross. Another early church father, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, exhorts the faithful that they should not be ashamed of Christ crucified, and the cross should be our seal, made with our fingers on our brow in the various events of our day-to-day life. Genuflecting, or the act of kneeling on one or two knees and then rising again, is an ancient act showing respect and devotion to royalty or any superior and recognition of that person's authority. Since the Middle Ages, the faithful have genuflected in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament and recognition of the reality that hidden in the tabernacle under the guise of bread is Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. Customarily, Catholics genuflect both when entering the presence of the Blessed Sacrament and upon leaving its presence. In the Eastern Christian churches, usually this respect is shown by a profound bow rather than by kneeling. Both the sign of the cross and genuflection are liturgical acts of prayer and worship, reminding the faithful that they are indelibly marked with the sign of the cross and that the true King of the universe, deserving of worship, lies hidden in the tabernacle of every Catholic church. I'm Bestrozimski, and this is another great moment in church history.
Welcome back to the Catholic Cafe. Here's Deacon Jeff. And welcome back to the Catholic Cafe's luxurious corner booth. I'm Deacon Jeff, and we're sitting here talking to Jim Gonzalez. And Jim, you have been um, talking about the, your situation. Uh, and, I, and, and when last we left, you had a diagnosis of ALS. Uh, Correct. And, now, how long ago was that when you got that diagnosis? That was three and a half years ago. Okay, so you've had three and a half years. Well, six months after that, I uh, got undiagnosed with ALS. And right. They said it was the T6. So you go through this whole roller coaster. I have it, I don't have it, I have it, I don't have it. They're basically you know, slapping your feelings around. They're slapping your point. feelings around, yeah, and you and have the still, highs and the lows. And still you're deteriorating in terms of your ability Correct. function. Correct. So I had the, the T6 herniation uh, operated on uh, immediately after the neurosurgeon saw it and saw that how large that it was, and they said, oh, this is what your problem is. It was probably another year after that. I mean, it was immediately after the surgery that I lost a lot of, of strength, upper body strength. Um, but it was about a year after that that the hands and the arms started to go as well. We're still not fully convinced that it is ALS. Doctors have said it's ALS. It looks like ALS. It presents itself as ALS. But I'm not giving up. And I'm not going to roll over and say, oh, my life is over. I have ALS. Doctors say I have You've got a sense of hope here. And I see you, and well, you seem to have that. a pleasant demeanor. I mean, you seem to be... Yeah. Uh, you're, you, uh, I will not say that I would ever understand the total um, impact this has had on your life because I haven't, haven't experienced that. But I can sense that you uh, that you've reconciled yourself to this where, wherever it's taking you. You don't get up. You get up every day and live. You give us this day our daily bread. Don't worry about tomorrow. Worry about today. What is today? It's sun shining. A little bit of rain outside. Enjoy the day. Don't. Your life isn't over. You might have a shorter time frame than, than most other people, but you're still living. You still have life to live. You still have a purpose in life. You, you, you can still give life to people. What are some of the things you're doing now? Because before you were very active, right? You were doing all the, the, the piloting and the right. whatnot, but are you, you're still an active person now, though, aren't you? Still an active person. I've been a music minister um, in the Catholic Church for 34 years, starting clear back when I was in high school. Um, I'm still a music minister. I've been doing the music for a teen mass in our local parish uh, now for about 14 years. In terms of singing, you can't play Singing, I used to play a guitar. Okay. Um, I can't sing anymore. I mean, I can't play a guitar anymore, but but I can still sing. My voice is still, if not better than it's ever been. Um, And in fact, I think in, in some ways, being up in front of six to 800 people in a wheelchair, showing my humanity allows me to do a better job of music ministry than I could when I was a big strapping healthy guy. You know, one thing Jim with me and actually ultimately I, I did not have ALS and I had surgery and, and basically that, I mean, seems to be at least right now I've stopped the progression. But one thing that really went through with me is I really appreciated our Catholic faith. It really, yes. I mean, more so I think, the, one of the gifts of our Catholic faith is to show us that, you know, there is some value. We can offer that suffering up and, you know, absolutely. We can offer it for others. We can offer it for the conversion of sinners. And as a prayer, it can be a, it in and of itself, if done lovingly for God in some divine way can be a prayer. Well, you know? yeah. And, and I, and it's a ministry as well. And, and I've had many conversations with, uh, paralytics, you know, people with disabilities that, 
are still trying to be stubborn and they're still trying to be independent and oh, I can get my own door and, yeah. and I've had to lecture them, stop it. Let people help you. you. You're a minister for helping other people's souls into heaven. By, they may not know what to do and it may be just opening a door for you, but it's an act of kindness. An act of love. And an act of love that you're, in, in essence, forcing them to do. You know, or you're, you're making it available for them, I guess is the better term. Well, you know, and you say that, and you, you said it's a ministry. And what's interesting about that is typically people might hearing this might think, well, shouldn't he be ministered to? And yet you are using this as an opportunity to minister to others. Oh, absolutely. And, and a few years ago, uh, my wife and I went out to dinner in, in Park City where we live. And they have a, a dinner out on Main Street where they close off the street and they put tables up and down the street and all the restaurants come out and they have a price fixed. Mm-hmm. And anyway, after dinner, I had to, had to go into the restroom. And I couldn't get my wheelchair into the stall. And I had to, it was, it was a non-ADA-equipped stall. And so I had to get out of my wheelchair, and the wheelchair was in the doorway, and I had to do my business in the doorway with people coming in. And I said, and I'm looking at the situation and, and realized that a two-minute fix could turn a non-ADA stall into a private stall for a lot of people. So I called up the, the city manager. And I started to explain the situation. He, he got very apologetic. He says, well, well I, I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. You know, it's grandfathered in. You know, it's, we're an old town. I said, understand that. But I said, it's a two-minute fix. I showed him what I was talking about, let the door swing out instead of swing in. And he said, nobody's ever said that to us. He said, that bathroom's been that way for 15 years, and nobody said a word. And I said, well, I'm not that kind of guy. Yeah. I said, let's take some time. I said, I'm willing to take what some would look as a tragedy Let's turn it into a beautiful thing. Run into your problems. Run, if you have a problem, run headfirst into it. And help other people. And help be. other people behind you. And so we, we spent several months working with the city uh, planners and engineers, mm-hmm. and we made our town a little more accessible uh, for, the, for other people with handicaps. You know, one thing that's helped me, too, is after that, before I got this diagnosis of this problem, I want to be super lawyer. It was really important to me. I argued a case before the U.S. Supreme Court, and I was very career-oriented. And then when I got hit with this, what I thought was ALS, or what they originally thought before it, they changed it, um, my priorities in life totally changed. Now, for example, it, what's really important to me is to be a good father, to be a good husband. Sure. I mean, I still work. Don't get me my, you know, oh, sure. I still work, but, sure. you know, I take my children to school, and we, and we stop by the, the parish. They're, they're in the parish school. And kneel down and pray a Hail Mary together as a family. I make sure I'm there for bad, bedtime. That I tell my children I love them every day. I tell my wife I love her every day. I mean, it's just amazing how the God can give you something to, as a wake-up call that, you know, we're all, we're all just, you know, not going to live that long. And to really, for me, it was a blessing to help prior, re, reprioritize my life. Uh, I don't know. Did you experience anything like that, Jim? With the, oh, yeah. Yeah, it, uh, it, it does humble you. And, and as someone who is fiercely independent, mm-hmm. you know, and who is now completely dependent, um, yeah, you have to change. It, it does change you. And, and it does change you sometimes in positive ways if you allow it to work and if you allow grace to enter your life. You have two directions you can go. You can be bitter. You can be angry. You, you you can shell, hole up into a shell and push the world out, and all you're going to be is miserable. 
or you embrace it and you say, what can I do to make my life and other people's lives better? And, and to be a blessing to others. And to be a blessing to others, absolutely. Tell us about your faith life now. Where, do, you, do you think that your faith life has increased, has decreased, has remained about the same? Have you always oh, been very faithful? Oh, I've always been very faithful. Um, I was one of the kids that, you know, in, in my early 20s when most people kind of stray and, and take up the church of the NFL, mm-hmm. you know, I still went to Mass every, every Sunday. I still played Mass every Sunday, you know, all through my right. 20s. And, and uh, so I've always been strong in my faith. But I didn't really get it until... You know, you have something like this happen to you. You can be going through the motions. You can be going through, you know, the obligations. But you don't really get it until I think sometimes when life hits you between the eyes. And you can step back and say, okay, this is a gift. And how do I use this gift to help other people? But but I love that uh, you, you, you've expressed your faith and you've expressed the love that you have uh, between you and your wife and, and, and how love is in your life. And, uh, and then also I, I love your hope. I love your sense of hope. Here you are in Lourdes. How did you find your, how did you find your way here to Lourdes? Uh, we had some friends of ours that were here five years ago that were brought uh, for a pilgrimage. He has uh, Parkinson's disease and they, they brought him to Lourdes and, uh, they came back and it was, it was uh, right. Uh, shortly after that was the first diagnosis and the scare and the paralysis and all of that. And, and so an opportunity came up, uh, this last December, and they they nominated me to come, and, and one of the Knights of the Order uh, sponsored me to come, paid for my trip. Uh, and an interesting thing, too, is talk about faith and allowing people into your life as well as we paid for my wife's portion of, of the trip. And three days later, someone showed up at the door with a check for her portion that was paid for by dozens of parishioners in our parish. Unbeknownst to us, you know, it was their gift to us, and we were a little bit embarrassed by it. And, you know, here comes the pride again. And we had to step back and say, no, it was a gift. Yeah, and Use even when you're, you're, you're telling other folks, you know, that they need to be humble and realize that they Once need to... Once you have to be... You have it happens to, to all... What reminder. goes around comes around. Absolutely. You have to get reminded of that every once well, in a while. Well, that's a beautiful story. And we will we'll pray for you, Jim. Thank um, you. And uh, we'll pray for your, uh, your, your healing, body, soul... Um, you know, your spirit is a, is a beautiful spirit, and, and I think that it's a great thing that you're here at Lourdes, and we really appreciate you sharing your story with, uh, with everyone. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, let's ask for the uh, Blessed Mother's intercession. Let's pray to the Hail Mary together. How about that, since we're okay. here in Lourdes? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary. Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to The Catholic Cafe. If you'd like to contact Deacon Jeff, send an email to deaconjeff at thecatholiccafe.com. The Catholic Cafe is brought to you by the Order of Malta Federal Association and is broadcast with ecclesial permission from J. Terry Stive, Bishop of Memphis in Tennessee. Join us again at the Catholic Cafe. There's always room for one more at our table.